Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf on your flagship station for New York sports. The Fan, Sports Radio 66 and 1019 FM, WFAN, New York. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Rick Wolf's Sports Edge. I'm your host, Rick Wolf. On this morning's show, we're going to discuss what parents and coaches need to know when it comes to the, the physical and the mental health of their young athletes. You know, the truth is, we haven't talked in a while about the, the physical dangers of contact sports, and especially in light of a couple of terrible tragedies in high school football games in our area recently, uh, I, I really do think this is a, a vital conversation to have this morning. And along the way, we're going to talk about a variety of sports, not just football. And of course, we'll, we'll take your calls at 877-337-6666. My special guest this morning is Dr. Eric Small who has appeared on the Sports Edge uh, several times in the past. And I, I can think of no one better qualified to go over uh, these various concerns that are so commonplace with kids, teenagers, and sports. Dr. Small is a nationally recognized expert in pediatric sports medicine. He is assistant clinical professor of pediatrics and orthopedics at Mount Sinai Hospital. And he also serves as a medical consultant and player physician for U.S. Open Tennis Championships. Dr. Small, first of all, thank you for for making some time this morning to talk about these incredibly important issues. Thanks for having me this morning on an important topic. Well, let's let's talk first about um, some serious injuries in football. Now, the last couple of weeks, uh, as I mentioned, there were two devastating high school football incidents, one resulting in the death of Xavier McLean, who was seriously injured on a kickoff at Linden High School. Uh, Xavier eventually succumbed and died. The other major football injury happened to a senior quarterback at St. John Vianney, uh, Aaron Von uh, Aaron Von Therese, who has no feeling in his lower body uh, due to a serious spinal injury after an on-field collision. This took place in a game uh, a few days ago. And, of course, at the NFL level, uh, the star quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, uh, Tua Tagliavoloa, suffered what seems to be his second uh, serious concussion in less than two weeks. Now, look, Dr. Small, we all know that all sports come with a certain assumption of risk and that football is the most dangerous of sports, followed by basketball, cycling, and soccer. And we know that high school football numbers enrollment have, has gone down in recent years, mostly because of the growing concern about concussions, and there's no way to really prevent them. 
But despite all the preventive measures that parents and coaches take, these, these incidents still occur. And when it comes to sports, the truth is injuries, of course, do happen. So let's, let's talk about this because everybody, everybody knows that there is going to be injuries in sports. We, ex- we sort of tacitly accept that, except that when it's the injured player happens to be your kid, that's when it gets real tough as a mom or dad. So let's talk first about concussions. And, and one of the things that people always talk about, Dr. Small, is about the, the so-called concussion protocol. Would you please explain in some detail what those actual steps are for any youngster in any sport who may have suffered a concussion? Yes, absolutely. It's first extremely important to define a concussion, which Mm -hmm. is defined as a trauma to the head, neck, shoulder, even back, which results in altered mental status or confusion or difficulty concentrating. So we have to get that definition clear because there's a confusion and the majority of concussions, there are no, quote, physical signs. It's just cognitive features. Once that concussion diagnosis has been made, there's two types of return to uh, protocols. There's, uh, when we're talking about school-age children, middle school, high school, there's return to learn. Can they go to school? Can they go a half a day? Can they go a full day? Can they take academic tests? Then there's the actual physical return to play uh, protocol. And in this case, we're talking about football. And that protocol, depending on where you lie in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and the school district itself, it could be a five-day return-to-play protocol or even a seven- or a ten-day return-to-play protocol. Mm -hmm. And that return-to-play protocol is a successive step increasing the physical stress on the athlete. So typically, uh, the first stage of the protocol is uh, biking, the second stage, which would be day two, is biking and running. The third day is uh, running uh, calisthenics, push-ups, sit-ups. Day four would be a non-contact practice. And day five is full practice or a full game. So it's a successive uh, arrangement of steps that they have to have no symptoms in order to proceed. Okay. Uh, let me just though go back to the initial incident uh, when the kid... I mean, how, how, do, how do you determine that a youngster has had a concussion? Uh, because obviously most times kids, they sort of shake their head and they say, I'm fine, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, they're, they're defiant. They want to go back and play in the game right away. How do you, as a physician, determine whether or not a youngster has actually had a concussion? Or is it just basically taking, uh, taking very, very precautionary concerns and saying, no, we're going to take you out of the game right now and not going to play? How, how do you, before you go into the protocol, how, how do you decide that the kid has to come out of the game? Yes, if there's any cognitive feature, they're confused, um, they're difficulty concentrating, they're not themselves. And here where it's critical to have another player on the team or the coach, how do they normally act? How do they act? There's also simple cognitive tests. Do they, uh, can they remember uh, numbers backwards? We call that serial sevens. Can they remember words? And mm-hmm. how are they responding to that? That's just the cognitive part. Then there's the actual physical assessment, you know, on the, on the sideline. Can they walk in a straight line? Can they balance with their eyes closed? And there are there any symptoms with those physical or psychological stressors? So it can be, there can be a gray area or a fine line, uh, but you really have to do the same protocol, the same assessment for, for each injured athlete. 
Yeah, so I mean, when, when they when they when you see a kid has uh, been obviously hit hard, uh, maybe their 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 um, their head uh, has bounced off the uh, the ground, the turf uh, in a game, and they sort of take their time, they sort of stagger to their feet. Okay, let's get this kid out of the game, and as you said, let's go first through these various uh, basic tests. Uh, as you said, counting backwards, asking them perhaps what day it is, uh, these kind of things. Um, you know, it, 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 at what point did you finally decide that, you know, coaches, uh, this kid's not going back in the game today. We think he's been concussed. Okay, the bottom line when we're dealing with high school and middle school athletes or even younger, mm-hmm. is if you're in doubt, they, they must stop playing. And that has been known for uh, over over two years. When in doubt, they should not be playing. And People get a lot, there's a lot of controversy with that, but it's better to err on the side of caution because this is the brain that we're talking about. And on the sidelines and even in an office, you can't do any scans which tell us if this child, this athlete has suffered a concussion or not. Okay, which brings me to my next question, Dr. Small. Okay, so now the, the kid is, has been um, removed from the game. Uh, they go into, as you just outlined very nicely, the, the, the various uh, steps of the protocol as to, you know, bit by bit by bit, the kid gets um, more acclimated and begins to make some progress from that injury. What about are, are, are the medical tests, uh, you know, the, the, the actual um, other MRIs, EEGs, what, what do you do? When does that come into play? Is that done routinely? Um, uh, how does that work? Excellent question. Tests that are indicated. Uh, a concussion is a clinical diagnosis. There are no what we call imaging studies. We would do a CAT scan in an emergency room setting if there is a loss of consciousness, um, if there is a seizure or one-sided weakness if there's some what we call a neurologic deficit Mm -hmm. um, do a cat scan and that's not looking for a concussion that's looking for a bleed inside inside the brain Mm -hmm. so that would be the only imaging study uh, we would do and again not to rule out or in a concussion but to do something look at something more life-threatening would be a cat scan Uh, other other tests we would not do right away EEG. We're looking for seizure activity unless we suspected a seizure. Um, and the MRI would be later down the road uh, if this CAT scan was normal. And, and then we would proceed to an MRI if there's other neurologic findings. Okay. Now, let's take this because uh, the vast majority of the kids who, who, uh, who do go through a concussion, again, it could be football, it could be soccer, baseball, basketball, whatever, you know, hitting your head either through contact with another player, hitting your head on the field, whatever it might be, but there's a concussion. In my experience, most of the athletes that I've encountered, and they say, okay, fine, I, I, I bang my head. Now, back in the day, you know, a long time ago, your kid was brought off the sideline, they were you know, given some smelling salts uh, and made sure they were okay and then went back in the game. But, of course, that those are the dark ages. Those days have now are long gone, thank goodness. But a lot of kids will say, you know, to their parents the next day, look, I'm fine. I don't, you know, I bang my head, but I don't have any problems. I feel great. Why can't I go back and, uh, you know, resume practice or, or get back into the games? Uh, and, of course, the parents are nervous because this happened just, uh, you know, 24 hours earlier. As you just outlined, there's a protocol. It is a five-day protocol. But what do you, how do you deal, how do you counsel parents who come to you and say, you know, my kid seems to be okay? Okay, that's an excellent question. Now, 
90% or a significant percentage of the concussions, we know right away if they're concussed or not. Yep. But 10% of kids will not present till two days, three days, even ah, a week later. And okay. ah. um, how do we know um, about those symptoms? Once they go back to a full day of school or one, once they start studying or doing computer work, their symptoms will uh, soon ensue. They will have difficulty concentrating. The computer light or the, the cell phone light gives them a severe headache. They're dizzy. So we really have to watch these athletes, and they need a follow-up visit with a physician, a sports <laughs> medicine physician, neurologist, day one, day two, even five days later to see if they're having symptoms. So I explain all of the time, you hurt your knee. Yes, it hurts. But the brain is much more complex and Things do not often present themselves to two, three, four days later uh, when they're going to school or doing other uh, activities. So you basically, of course, and again, this is key, as you just mentioned, that, that you have to basically educate the, the mom or dad that, you know, okay, the kid, this is 24 hours after the injury. Kid seems to be doing fine, and he, he, he or she protests, no, I'm great, I'm fine, I'm going to go back and practice with my teammates again. But you're saying to the parents, it's actually the second, third, or fourth day, and you have to be aware if your youngster suddenly uh, has a difficult time trying to concentrate or to read or to do homework. Uh, and sometimes the kids won't say anything to the parents, but the parents are the ones who have to basically be aware that these are the secondary concerns after the fact, correct? That, that is correct. And that's why we have to monitor um, the child, the, um, the athlete, how are they acting? How are they responding to normal activity? And again, they want, they want to go back to play. They, they're going to minimize their symptoms, but it's very important to look at these other features. How's their daily functioning doing? Is there a personality change? Are they new, normally very social and now they're very quiet and reticent? Or are they normally very outgoing and now they're very withdrawn? So these personality changes can be subtle, but if we don't specifically ask the parent, well, has your child been more tired lately or more irritable, cranky, and they didn't realize, oh, that could be from this head trauma, from this concussion. So that's really important to look at that several days later. Hmm. Okay, I think that's, that's a message we definitely want parents to hear uh, because they may not be you know, aware of how, how important it is to watch very, very carefully their youngster over the next several days after the incident. All right, let me take a break. We're talking with Dr. Eric Small, nationally recognized uh, expert in the field of pediatric sports medicine. Uh, he is a, a clinical professor of pediatrics and orthopedics at Mount Sinai Hospital. When I return, I have to talk about other injuries involving kids in sports, and of course, We'll take your calls at 877-337-6666. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This morning, my guest is Dr. Eric Small of Mount Sinai Hospital. We're talking about kids, teenagers, and uh, athletic injuries and what parents need and coaches need to know um, when watching over these kids as they compete. Now, Dr. Small, you know, we know that these days there are relatively few three-sport high school athletes anymore. The trend, of course, is for more and more parents to, to funnel their kid into just one sport, which they, uh, they play exclusively all year round, and that leads to repetitive use injuries. So let me ask you about that. With repetitive use injuries, uh, what, are, what are you seeing when it comes to this situation, and what, what are the most common repetitive injuries, use injuries are you seeing? Yes, t- typically the most common in- overuse injury in sports is a what we call a stress injury, uh, patella tendonitis, patella stress injury, stress or pain about the knee from too much running in soccer or basketball or mm-hmm. even year-round track. Um, there's repetitive um, foot uh, stress injuries or foot stress fractures, and we're seeing more and more of these stress fractures or overuse injuries, which are totally preventable, unlike the concussions, which are not preventable. Um, majority of those overuse injuries uh, are, occur because they do too much at the beginning of the season and there was not appropriate warm-up or conditioning four to six weeks prior to the season. So we see these overuse injuries, stress injuries, stress fractures, usually the first week or the second week of practice. I, I'm curious because, I mean... I mean, the, the whole concept of repetitive use injuries is a relatively new one, it seems to me. It didn't, I wasn't aware uh, when I was growing up, uh, and I realized that was a long time ago, but I never heard of anybody having a repetitive use injury uh, or a stress fracture. But you say now, because these kids are playing sports, one sport, like let's say a, you know basketball or soccer or whatever, all year round, is that, is that really the major contributing factor to these injuries? Yeah, it's, to- it's overtraining and whether they're... Uh, 10 or 12 years old playing in three soccer leagues, three soccer teams at the same time, or basketball. They're just doing the same activity over and over and over again. Um, whereas 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, there would not be uh, year-round sports in that one specific sport. They would do, as you said before, mul- multiple uh, sports in different seasons. And in, a, in addition to doing one sport now, they're actually doing extra training with a private coach or extra oh, yeah. training, uh, working on specific skills, their agility, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it is. And, you know, the kids are developing. They're still growing during these years. Uh, in fact, well, let me ask you this. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a condition called Osgood-Slaughter disease. Um, is that related to this at all? Or is that a totally separate kind of situation mm-hmm. when it comes to a kid's leg? 
Okay, that is a growth-related concern, typically in uh, boys ages 12 to 15, girls 9 to 12, when they're undergoing a growth spurt, um, there is pulling on the tendon below the knee and a resultant bump ensues. Uh, But if a child is inactive or they're just doing low-impact activities, such as swimming or biking, they won't develop pain. But when they're doing running and squatting, example, basketball, soccer, or running in football, they'll develop a painful bump. Whereas if they're inactive, it, it really won't hurt them too much. So it's a combination of growth uh, as well as uh, overtraining or intense training. So just to be clear, Osgood Schlatter disease is, as you say, sort of uh, quite literally growing pains uh, with the kids and their and their well, and their leg. Well, there's two types of growing pains. There's a growing pain where they have a specific pain. Uh, induced by activity, and that typically is above the age of 10. Quote, growing pains um, occurs in under the age of 8, where they wake up in the middle of the night complaining of pain. So there's two two types. There's an actual condition, uh, Oscar Schlatter or heel pain, where it's from the activity, and, and that typically is ages 10 to 16, whereas, quote, growing pains is waking them up in the middle of the night, and it's not related to activity at all. Got it. All right. So with Osgood Slaughter, uh, what do you what what does a what what does a kid do? What does a parent do for that? Just have them sit out and not not perform? No. T- typically, we look to change their activity. So in baseball, if they're a baseball catcher, they're more likely to develop painful Osgood Slaughter from all that squatting. So we right. move them. Maybe they can catch one or two innings per weekend versus a double header. So we move them to another position. Uh, if they're playing in those three soccer leagues or three basketball leagues at the same time, maybe have them only play twice a week for the next two, three weeks. So it's about, about modifying their physical activity, not having them sit out. Okay. All right. Let me, um, let me take some calls because I have lots of uh, other topics I want to discuss with you as well. Uh, but let, let's, uh, let's talk uh, first with Dr. Rob Freed, who's, who's checking in. Uh, Rob, good morning. I know this is an area that, uh, since you're a, a long-time, uh, long-distance runner and very good at it, this is an area when it comes to running and, and uh, leg injuries and stuff, uh, this is something that's very near and dear to you. Hey, Rick, you know, you know I get excited when, when we talk medicine. I mean, Dr. Small, I'm a podiatrist uh, since 1990. And I became a podiatrist mainly because I was a college athlete and got interested in it. And I did a podiatric orthopedic residency and, and, and as well as pediatric. So I spent a lot of time with kids in, in, in my residency and, you know, in my practice, dealt a lot with, with youth injuries. And, you know, you just you touch on so many amazing things, uh, which I kind of want to go, you know, discuss with you as well as, um, you know, bring, bring light to the audience. That as was Osgood Slattle usually resolves on its own. I'm glad Rick brought that up because the kids will complain of knee pain and you know, that, that little bump. It's usually, like you said, it, it, it's, it's a growth fight. I've seen that even though most of the things I've run across in my practicing as well as on personal issues has been obviously related to the low extremity of the foot. And like you said, um, stress fractures are just overuse injuries. And, and it's usually the, the athlete that has not been training. You know, they used to call them march fractures. Going back to the war days, they would send these, uh, these recruits on 20-mile walks, and they were not conditioned back in the war days. And, you know, they would complain of pain, and the sergeants would say, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, because they don't show up for a couple, a couple weeks later on. 
But my thought going forward on some of this, you know, what you're talking about here, is you, you mentioned concussions. Number one, I believe they're cumulative. They're basically just a brain bruise, as you kind of explained. And, like, the parents have to be aware as they're teaching their kids to get involved with sports, as well as the coaches. And this is a coaches show learning about understanding a technique and tackling like in football, not to use the head. I think it's very important the coaches learn the proper technique in teaching the young athlete um, how to proper, you know, uh, the different techniques in, in tackling and blocking along those lines. I'd like you, one last thing I want to bring up, uh, which I'd like you to touch on because I was thinking about this, is the difference between females and males, because we've talked a lot, Doctor, on this show about, you know, uh, females with the ACL injuries because they have a, a Q angle, and you know what I'm talking about, and ligamentum laxity. Uh, they have a different structure compared to boys, and they're much more susceptible to ACL. We see that in the soccer, uh, in the soccer world. Can you please discuss that? Because I think it's really important, males versus females. They're very, very different, and, and you know, I think the parents should be made aware of the differences along those lines and potentially um, what they should be looking for with females. And I think it's yeah. a great topic, Rick. As always. I could go on, but I don't want to. <laughs> I know you got other girls that want to come on in here. I, thank I, you for bringing this to light. Yes, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, thanks, Rob, for the call as always. And I guess one of the notes I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Dr. Small, was about ACL injuries. And yeah. as Rob mentioned, I have covered this over the years. Um, it, there's, the way it is, the way I understand this, is that when it comes to, to females uh, and ACLs, they suffer anywhere from three to four to five times more ACL injuries than, than boys do. There's no way to prevent this just because that's the way women are put together you know, physically. Um, but are there any stretching exercises or plyometrics that one can do to strengthen the, uh, the, the key muscles around one's knee? And that, yes. Does that really help? Yes. So talk yes, about absolutely. That. Great points with the ACL. Well, pre-puberty, um, before the growth spurt, ACL injuries are equally common, males and females. But during and post-puberty, it is, as you outlined, three to five times more likely for a female uh, to injure or rupture their ACL. So why is that? It actually has to do with actually the landing mechanics uh, and the... Um, ratio of the quad to hamstring strength. So there are uh, preventative exercises. It's called a knee injury prevention program that was first established in 1992, where we teach jump training to young athletes. And they do that two times per week, uh, encouraging them to land with their knee at 90 degrees. So those who, and we can screen for that to see who's susceptible to the ACL. So there are absolutely, it's plyometrics, but it's twice a week, hmm. um, 10 or 15 minutes of jump training, uh, core strengthening planks, uh, glute bridges that could prevent actually 93% of knee injuries, including ACL. And that's been borne out. But what, what happens is that a lot of the coaches are aware of this, but Instead of applying it two times a week, the coaches or the parents are doing it five or six times per week. So then they uh, may prevent their ACL, but now they get a stress fracture. So <laughs> they have to be applied appropriately in the appropriate context. I, all right. I just want to be clear about this. You're saying that, that when we go through the, this training, this jump training, to basically prevent 
uh, you know, an ACL injury, which is obviously very serious, um, that it should be no more than twice a week because you say, well, if it's, I mean, most, most people would say, well, if it's good for my kid twice a week, why not do it five times a week? Uh, so you say, no, that, that leads into other issues with overuse, correct? Correct. So there's a fine line. It's been proved that the jump training twice a week, 15, 20-minute session can prevent these knee injuries. But when applied, when done daily, uh, it, it leads to the other overuse injuries. So this, there's science behind that, that it's twice a week, uh, and that's been borne out over the past 20 years. All right, that is that is essential to know because I was under the impression that the, while there were some exercises to be done, you're telling me this actually works, or in the sense it does cut back substantially on, on uh, again mostly on on on, uh, on females, uh, girls who obviously compete and and don't want to have a, have an ACL uh, disrupt their um, their competitive uh, sports. Correct. 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 All right, that that's great. Now let me ask you this: since we're talking about running. And, and the legs. What is IT band syndrome? I mean, that's something, that's a term I'm not familiar with. I know where the IT bands are, but what is the syndrome? What does that yeah. mean? Sure. The IT band or iliotibial band is a band of tissue. It's not a muscle or a tendon. It's tissue that goes from the outside of the hip uh, all the way down the outside of the leg to the outer aspect of the knee. Mm-hmm. And typically that is in, in runners. Um, where, and that's not unique, which is interesting. It's not unique to children and adolescents. It's equally as common, probably more common in adults. So it's not related to growth. It's just from tightness in the hip flexors and the uh, piriformis and the other muscles that, that line the hip joint. And un- unlike a stress fracture, unlike an ACL, um, that does not require surgery. They don't need to miss time. They just need to alter their training. So perhaps less jumping or less distance or less sprinting, depending on what specific sport that they're doing. So it's not a life-threatening thing. It's just pain on the outside from the hip going down to the outer aspect uh, of the knee. Okay, so, so how does that present itself? In other words, if, you're, if your kid comes to you, your you know, 14-year-old uh, daughter or son, how would they, how would they, what would they say to you? They say, my, my hip hurts or my leg hurts? What, what would they be aware of? Typically, they, they'll say, their knee hurts them or the hip hurts them. And as a astute physician or clinicians, well, where does it hurt? Does it hurt on the inside of the hip of the knee or does it hurt on the outside? It only hurts on the outside of the knee. Uh, and similar to the ACL, which we touch only touched upon, people who have loose joints are more likely to suffer an ACL. They're also more likely to suffer um, IT band or at the other end of the extreme if they're very tight in their muscles. So the two extremes, the hypermobile, the loose jointed, or the very tight um, will, will lead to this pain on the outside of their knee or the outside of their hip. And how, how, how about a kid or a parent or a coach uh, know what a loose joint is with a kid's uh, you know, knee, let's say, or whatever? They're, uh, they'll complain that their kneecap pops and clicks, or they can uh, clicking their shoulders. But there's three clinical criteria that they can put their thumb to their forearm, their elbows hyperextend, and their knees uh, extend backwards. So those, if you point that out, um, a lot of parents don't know that. Some are aware that their child is loose-jointed, but there's three clinical criteria that we can assess for that. Got it. Boy, this stuff is, uh, is fascinating. Um, 
and oh, Dr. Small, before I forget, where can the listeners uh, find you in, in the pediatric uh, sports department at Mount Sinai? What, what's the best place for them if they want to contact you or, 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 or seek you out? Yes, they would just go to the Mount Sinai website, mountsinai.org, and search under Physicians Dr. Eric Small. So there's a nice search engine. It'll come to the Mount Sinai website uh, and have my picture and ask me questions, et cetera, just the mountsinai.org, and then search under Dr. Eric Small. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, we've got to take another break. Um, we're going to continue with our conversation with Dr. Eric Small. And I guess we'll take uh, more of your calls at 877-337-6666. Back with more after this. Hey, friends, uh, just a reminder that uh, you can always find more resources at my website at AskCoachWolf.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at AskCoachWolf. And just a, uh, an important programming note. Uh, because the New York Giants play against the Packers in London next Sunday morning, that game will be broadcast starting here around 9 o'clock in the morning, which means that the NFL pregame shows are going to be move up with the schedule, and that means that the Sports Edge will air at 6 a.m. next Sunday. Not 7 o'clock, 6 a.m. Now, this is just a, a one-time situation for next Sunday morning. The following Sunday we return to a 7 a.m. start time. But again, next Sunday, we'll be on at 6 a.m. Now, of course, if you're not up that early next week, you should know that the Sports Edge can be heard in its entirety as a podcast. On You just go to WFAN.com, find the link for podcast, or you can go to AskCoachWolf.com, where you can hear the show there as well. And again, just to, to summarize, next Sunday, Rick Wolf's Sports Edge begins at 6 a.m. All right, let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Dr. Eric Small of Mount Sinai Hospital about athletes, young athletes, and injuries. Uh, and, of course, we'll take your calls at 877-337-6666. Dr. Small, I, I do want to take a moment uh, to mention Lyme disease because uh, about 10, 12 years ago, my youngest daughter had her athletic career uh, really uh, in college was derailed due to an undiagnosed case of Lyme. And I, I still worry that other kids may not be aware that Lyme is a, a potentially very dangerous disease or the parents aren't aware of it or don't, don't really get involved until it's unfortunately it's, uh, the disease is sort of spread throughout the body. Now, look, we know Lyme disease has become more and more of a common occurrence, uh, especially with youngsters who are playing sports outside on athletic fields or near wooded areas. Dr. Small, what has been your observations about kids and Lyme? And, and, you know, they always talk about the fact there's a bullseye. That's not, from my experience, not always the case. Uh, but tell me your thoughts about Lyme disease and what parents need to know about that. Yes, great point. I do see in my practice probably I diagnose one case of Lyme probably per month. And typically they do not have a rash. Typically they present to the office. They think it's an injury. Mm -hmm. My knee hurts me is the most common complaint. But when you look at them, they have significant swelling above their knee. That is the classic sine qua non of Lyme disease of the knee, that they have swelling above their knee. And they typically do not have pain running around in sports. It's just kind of generalized pain. But when you go back in the history, you ask them, have you had a headache or have you had fever? Uh, and typically, they have had some headache in the past month, and they thought it was migraines or thought, they thought it was from skipping meals. 
Um, so the most common presentation of Lyme in the sports medicine setting in my practice is that they present with knee pain. They're not even necessarily aware that it's swollen. And it's not affected at all by activity. And if that goes on for months, swelling, then it could lead to um, problems. The Lyme, it can get encephalitis of the brain or they can get um, arrhythmias in the heart. So it's important to recognize and diagnose, diagnose that at an early stage so they can be treated appropriately with antibiotics. Yeah, as I said, uh, you know, uh, my, my daughter, Samantha, she was a, a very, very uh, promising uh, lacrosse player. And um, she had those kind of symptoms you just described where I'm not sure about the swelling above her knee, but she had she was having difficulties concentrating. Uh, she wasn't a uh, little balance concerned. She just said, you know, she had some maybe a small fever, which went away. But she just wasn't feeling herself. And I remember uh, we had taken her to, to the doctor. The doctor, uh, you know, decided, well, we're going to send you to an ENT specialist. We're going to send you to a neurologist and so on and so forth. And finally, uh, I was talking one day with my brother, who's a, a pediatric neurologist up in Boston. And he said to me, well, well Rick, didn't they do a blood test? Because the blood test would for, for Lyme, this sounds like Lyme. I mean, if you live in Westchester County, which I do, Lyme is everywhere. And, and uh, a blood test uh, looking for the Lyme titers would have basically told everybody what, what the problem might be. And so uh, that we had the blood test done. Again, this is several weeks, many weeks after that we were already consulted with a physician. And the, the, the titers were all very positive for Lyme. And by that point, you know, Samantha had to go through not just the, the usual, what, three weeks of doxycycline, but had to mm -hmm. go through a lot of weeks of doxycycline. And it took her quite, probably close to a year before um, she felt better. But at that point, she, she, could, she, could, she obviously could not play a lacrosse in college because she could hardly even walk. So these are serious concerns. And again, of course, the Lyme disease, the, 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 uh, the tick is so small, it's so hard to spot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just want to make sure people know this is, a, this is very, very serious stuff. And it's not, it's not you know, if a kid gets, uh, you know, hit, hits their head on the ground, well, maybe they have a concussion. Lyme disease is a little more insidious. You don't really see this. Yeah, the other comments with that, it can be very tricky uh, to diagnose, to think about the Lyme, but what you have to ask as the parent or as the physician, uh, when does the, well, they are presenting to sports medicine orthopedics with a, typically a joint pain, but is it hurting during activity or mm -hmm. is it hurting all the time? So typically when it's an overuse injury or acute injury, it only hurts in the activity Whereas the Lyme, when it affects the joint, it's hurting all the time, and the sport's not necessarily making it worse. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, anyway, so the good news is Samantha is fine now, and, uh, you know, again, this was some years ago, but at the time it was very, very distressing because we really didn't know what the problem was until we finally got the blood test. So that's, that's again, I, I just caution parents, if your kid is having these sort of weird, unusual symptoms, Make sure you talk to your uh, your pediatrician and just say maybe we should check for for Lyme. Simple as that. All right, let's take some more calls at eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. Next up is Jack Smithlin over in Fairlawn. Jack, good morning. You're on the fan. How are you, Rick? I'm actually up in Boston by your brother right now. So, um, <laughs> okay, celebrating some birthdays, but. Um, I had one question before I wanted to get into my regular thing for Dr. Small. Um, doc, is it, 
it used to be an indicator. One of the tests for concussions was the dilating of the eyes. Does that still hold true? I mean, I remember, you know, years ago, if you got hit in the head, they would take you on the side, they would make you close your eyes, open them real quick to light and see if they were dilating. Is that a sign or is that a, uh, um, actually a test? Okay. The, that's a great question. That's a physical sign. Well, there is, um, if we expect, uh, if we are trying to rule out that's necessarily a concussion, but what we call an, an ensuing um, significant um, swelling in the brain, then one eye will dilate. But more and more important sign to look out for is the eye tracking. Are they able to look side to side, up and down? And does that induce symptoms? So that's a much more common sign or symptom of a concussion. The eye tracking, that gives them symptoms. When one eye dilates improperly or too much or too little compared to the other, that could be a life-threatening um, brain swelling, which is not a concussion. That they're, We're talking about a bleed there. But the eye tracking and the pupillary dilatation or constriction is an important thing to look for. Absolutely. Great point. Would it, would it be usually on the same side as the head got hit? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Jack, well, you had a, I, go ahead, Jack. Another question as well. Go ahead. Yeah, what I wanted to talk about is the overuse injuries and things like that. I mean, I'm a prime example of it, believe it or not. Um, I'm going to be 71 years old, and I'm a I'm a I'm a hitting coach that does a lot of throwing to my hitters, and I've always thrived on the fact that my mechanics were always very very good, which will create a longer longevity to the to the arm. But I remember um, uh, Peterson was one of the pitching coaches for the Mets, and he wrote a book about how the arm only has a certain amount of throws in it. But, you know, I've, I, I really injured my, my right shoulder, and it's going to be replaced, you know, fairly soon. But I've had injuries, and I've dealt with those injuries mentally. And that's one of the things, you know, when you talk about overuse injuries and kids, you know, you know when you talk about kids playing three sports or – playing three seasons or four seasons, you know, one of the worst things in baseball is that these kids play on their travel team, they play on a club team, they might even be playing in high school, and if they're a pitcher, these three coaches are not keeping track of what the other coach did. And that's something that the parent has to keep in touch with. They have to understand that even though their kid is a very, very good pitcher, you know, softball's a different situation because you know, underhand is a natural motion, and the pain that I have in my shoulder right now. Um, you know, I coach at I coach softball in college at, at NJCU, and I throw underhand every day. I have no, you know, no additional pain. But when I throw overhand, I can't throw overhand. Actually, I can't even pick my hand up over my head at times. Um, I know that's a, you know, that's a cause. But the overuse injuries is very, very important, and it must be tracked more so by the parent than the coach. You know, and it's something that they have to be aware of. Like Rick said, there's not too many three-sport athletes anymore, but there are four-season athletes, and these guys are playing and doing exactly the same thing all year round. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, the p- point is that, and actually I have four sons who played college baseball, not not pitchers, but the point is that from a young age, a Little League baseball does have pitch counts, but – as you said, the coaches don't communicate, but it's not just the pitches that I'm finding. It's that, that the pitcher who can usually throw hard, they'll have him or her play catcher in the same game, 
or they'll have them play middle infield. So if they're pitching, yes, there needs to be a pitch count, a pitch limit. But when they're playing that game or the next day, they should not be playing catcher. Uh, that when they should not be playing a middle infield, they should be do designated hitter or playing first base some, somewhere where they're not throwing as much. Yeah. Um, and we have in you know the major leagues, we have the pitch counts, but they're not really tracked, as you pointed out. Um, that the parent needs to track that because the other coaches or the travel teams are not communicating with each other. Yeah, yeah, Jack, as we've we discussed, and, and thank you as always for, for checking in, but clearly the, the, the parents today, uh, they know how they have to basically uh, you know, track their kids pitching because um, especially if the kid is talented uh, and he's playing on different teams, uh, the, the various coaches are going to want to put him in the game as often as possible, and that's not, that's not going to be productive in the long term for, for the youngster. But, Jack, my, my thanks again. Now, 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 Doctor, I do, before we run out of time this morning, I do want to talk a little bit about mental health. And, and young athletes, because this is obviously an issue that has really come into uh, national prominence in recent years. And again, that's all to the good. But I'm curious, in, in your practice uh, as a physician, what are you seeing or hearing from from kids these days? Do you ever find that that the that the kids are I don't know they're speaking up more than ever before? Uh, do they feel like they 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 look upon you or they want to tell you things that maybe they feel their their parents are being too pushy or they're not having enough time in their lives to pursue what they want to do? What, what, what are you ter- what are you seeing in terms of mental health? And yes, we'll talk well, about the parents. Mental as well. health is absolutely. Overlooked, we can physically see what's wrong with the knee or the ankle. Um, but since uh, actually COVID, though, we have not spoken about COVID with the isolation being uh, doing more uh, Zoom schooling and homeschooling, there's a much more an- anxiety and stress. There's uh, more availability now through schools to talking to people, but, but parents, but especially, especially the young athlete, will often talk to me, well, look. I'm under a lot of pressure. What do you recommend that, you know, that I do? And the important thing is to take some downtime or, or scale back on their studies or, or their, their training. Um, so sometimes we say that doing less sport or doing less academics, they'll perform better and be less stressed out. But that's something that in the past, past year, two years since COVID has hit, that's become more of a forefront um, the anxiety, the stress, and the depression that we're seeing in young athletes. So, and again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about this uh, this morning because, um, as you said, this has all been sort of precipitated by COVID. Obviously, kids today who have gone through uh, the last few years with the, the pandemic, and obviously they're scared. They don't know what COVID is or how it's going to affect them and their lives. Uh, but there are still the parents and the parental expectations these days are sky high when it comes to the youngsters in sports, uh, and the kids are trying to balance schoolwork, as you said, their homework, uh, their friends, their social network, uh, endless practice and games. It's a lot of work and long hours for the kids. So, I mean, do, do you ever sit down and talk to the parents or and say, look, you know, your kid's doing a lot. Uh, you, make sure that he or she does have that downtime where they just can just – you know, breathe a, a sigh of relief and not have to feel like they have to be chauffeured to the next practice or to the next school event or whatever? Yes, often I find what is effective that after our visit with the young athlete and the parent, I will give the parent a call or exchange um, on, the, uh, on their chart of, about what's going on. It's often in our uh, 
busy lives in the office, we can't get at that mental health aspect. But a follow-up phone call, follow-up email is helpful. And then to check in with the parent or the athlete a week later, a month later, and having serial discussions either with myself or the pediatrician or some social worker or mental health provider that they can access at the school. But that's important if it's brought up or at each visit, um, just talking about, well, how are you doing? You're now a junior or a senior. You're being recruited and you're taking SATs and ACTs. There's a lot of stress there, and we need to start talking about that as part of even an injury visit. You know, I find that to be, uh, you know, fascinating because, I mean, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, this this kind of conversation, this kind of follow-up with the kid, with the parent, this didn't happen, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, correct? That, that's correct. It's, it's more uh, a, a normal to talk about mental health, but we need to make it part of the daily conversation. And, and uh, I'm curious, the, 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 when you follow up with the parents, uh, do you ever find, um, are, they, are, they res- are they resistant? Uh, or do they, do they, are they in denial? I mean, what happens if they say, no, my kid's fine, he just has to uh, you know, tough it up, uh, toughen up and play through it kind of stuff, and the old, old well, school mentality? Right. The the interesting part about that is that whether it's a parent of a 12-year-old or 16-year-old, the parent will often always say, because I'm in the sports world, mm-hmm. uh, sports medicine world, they'll often will, will say, well, they have this really important tournament or they have this <laughs> really important recruiting trip. Um, and, and I try to take it back. Well, they're going to do better if they're less stressed. They kind of understand that, but it takes a while of education, not just one follow-up call. It's, it's ongoing, and we need a cultural yeah. shift of how the parents are being sports parents, as your show is about. Yeah, and, you know, uh, you know I, I chuckle because, yes, that's the usual knee-jerk reaction from the parent. Yeah, well, my kid can relax later on, but right now he's got that big showcase coming up or he's got that big, uh, big game coming up. Yeah, but... You understand, mom and dad, that your kid will play better and will enjoy the experience more if they are more uh, relaxed about going into the process. Simple as that. But anyhow, Dr. Eric Small, this has just been a fascinating and hopefully for our listeners a a very, very educational hour. I I really can't thank you enough for for taking the time on this Sunday morning. Again, Dr. Eric Small of Mount Sinai Hospital. uh, And again, he is one of the leading experts in the country in pediatric sports medicine. Dr. Small, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, Okay, and that's going to do it for me in this edition of the Sports Edge. Uh, Please stick around for NFL Preview. That comes up next. My thanks, as always, to Ed Arzuman. I'll see you next Sunday at 6 a.m. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.